good to see everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Luke, if we've not met yet. Um, I'm excited to lead through 2 Samuel 6. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be, 2 Samuel 6. We've been walking through the major episodes of David's life, not all of them, but the big days, the memorable days, either good or bad. Um, and today is going to be one of those days. It's a very odd passage, likely one that you've had a lot of questions about. Um, but I'll tell you, as we walk through this series on how David interacts with different things, whether it's friendship or authority or humility, we're going to look at how he interacts with worship today. And what's unique about worship, and I'm going to speak broadly about worship, what's unique about worship is it changed shape. And it changes scope depending on the size of God and the size of yourself. So what I mean is before Christ rescued me, I felt like I was large and God was kind of small, right? I was an agnostic. Um, I wasn't a total atheist, but I was leaning in that direction. But God, if he did exist, was very tiny. And he just kind of was, was a piece of, of uh, he was a thing that spiraled in my orbit. But I wouldn't worship him because I was big and he was small. I was looking to be worshipped, really, and I would worship myself. And then when God rescued me and I became a Christian, God changed shape. And I did as well. I became smaller and he became bigger. And then worship became a thing that was a part of my regular life. And what's interesting about even God expanding in size, although his size never changes, the more I learned about him, the more I, I discovered about his attributes and his character, who he really was, he would grow. And, and that's what I would tell my friends. My God is growing. Now, he wasn't really growing, but you understand that he was getting bigger in my view. And what that did is it, it brought more beauty to my worship, deeper scope to my worship. Instead of him spinning in my orbit, I started spinning in his. And when I say worship, again, I'm going to speak broadly, not just talking about what we do when music is playing, but I want to talk about the whole and the totality of a reverent life lived. Uh, practices like adoration and thanksgiving, praise. I mean, we, we worship God in a million different ways, not just singing, because it's the whole of a reverent life. How we spend our money to the glory of God can or may, may not be worship, depending on you. How we spend our words, how we spend our time, if we do it to the glory of God, is a worship before the Lord. How we raise our kids can be an act of worship to the Lord. And what this passage is going to show us today is what we worship will change us. Worship changes us, literally. Literally, emotionally, mentally. It alters us, edits who we are. But the question I carry to this passage is, just how much though? I mean, it might change us, worship might change us, but can worshiping God make us where we don't even recognize ourselves? Because that's, that's what I want. I want a systemic change. When I, when I say I want to change, may, maybe you say the same thing. I don't want to go back to the way I was. No one's really happy with their current operating system. Nobody wants to be 4% better than they are today, 10% better. They want to be totally different than they are today. I want a life where I could look at my journal readings maybe every two or ten years and see a version of a guy I don't recognize anymore. I don't even recognize that guy anymore because God has grown me so much. That's what I want. Right? Now this passage is frustratingly awkward today, and yet it's a centerpiece to your Bible. I mean, it's as important as any other passage in that Bible, and I want to see how it speaks to three things today. One is how we see God. 
Two, how it changes our worship. And three, how that worship changes us. All right, so let me do that again. One, I want to see how this passage shows us how God changes in our view, right? How we see God. Second, how does that alter and edit the way we worship him? And then third, how does that worship alter and edit us in turn? So we're going to start off by looking at the passage in 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. It's uh, 23 verses. It's a quick little passage today. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. I'm going to read it with you. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Okay, okay. I mean, does that sound a little over the top to you? Does that sound a little incredible that that would happen? I mean, it's definitely killing the vibe of this parade with all the instruments. I'm sure there are no castanets playing in the background while everyone's staring at this dead guy right next to an ark. And then what do they do with it after this? I mean, I definitely, if I was one of these guys sitting around the ark, I would have looked at it and looked at the dude next to me and said, well, where's it going now? Are you going to take this home? I'm not taking it home. Someone's got to take this home. I and mean, what do they do from this point on? If this reads bizarre, <clears throat> it's because it is. It is. And David, verse 8, was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. <coughs> Excuse me. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm on the backside of bronchitis. I've almost got it where I want it. <coughs> <coughs> It's really bad today. Forgive me. All right, let's try this again. I'm going to go back. Verse 6, then David put garrisons. Nope, different chapter. Did you see the page flop over when I did that? <laughs> that is hilarious. <coughs> and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David <coughs> with rejoicing. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Okay, there's a lot going on here. This is why some people struggle with the Bible, by the way, passages just like this, because it seems so off-brand for how you and I have come to see the Lord as we've grown up, right? I mean, he looks so capricious and fickle here. He looks so exacting on people who just have good intentions. I I mean, when I read it, I think, man, Uzzah doesn't sound like that bad of a guy to me. I don't think he's doing anything I wouldn't have tried to do. I mean, who, who has caught something about to fall and you don't even really think about it? You stick your hand up and you try to steady it. And Michael, I mean, gosh, she's not, allowed to, she's not allowed to have a bad day. I mean, she's just having a bad day. And then she loses the ability to have kids. I mean, what kind of margin of error is there in a passage like this? What kind of margin of error do we have? Does this still happen? Stuff like this. I want to unpack this before we try to import it into our modern lives, because this is a modern passage, by the way. And just as an update on this passage, if you're unfamiliar with the timeline of the Old Testament, before this, the ark was not in Jerusalem. You probably picked up on that. In fact, it it never really made it onto Saul's to-do list. It was not even really important. It probably didn't even make his top ten list. But, But David, he wanted it home. He made it a priority, not because he felt like it was magical or brought good luck, but because it represented the presence and the relationship of God. All through the Old Testament, that's how we see it. Wherever the ark went, God's presence went, and David wanted it home. Wherever the ark went, God's power went. So David, excuse me, David saw God as the source of power and blessing for this whole nation. God. Not the army, not the king, not the economy. David wanted the whole nation to see that God was the centerpiece of national life, not the king. (coughs) Now Saul wanted it the other way around. 
So step one for David, if he's going to teach his nation this, is to change the address of the ark. And the ark, if you're unfamiliar with it, <coughs> it was a box about the size of a large cooler. And inside of it, you would have Aaron's staff, you'd have the Ten Commandments, you would have uh, manna, pieces of manna to, that was used in the, in the days of the wilderness. It was covered with gold, inside and out. The lid was even covered with gold. I had two cherubim, two angels, sitting on top that were facing each other, <coughs> and that lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was that moment, that place where God's uh, glory would appear whenever it was in the tabernacle, in the holiest of holies. And so this is, this is a beautiful a beautiful thing that God told his nation to build that would hold the symbol of his presence. And you can read all about it inside of Exodus and Numbers because it has a lot there to kind of describe how it was built, how it was supposed to be carried around, what was supposed to go in it. There's a lot of detailed rituals that are handed down to us. Or if you've seen, I guess, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you see that you're not supposed to touch it, right? And isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark where we've all learned the most about the Ark of the Covenant, not from the Bible? I was thinking about this this morning because I watched it last week with my daughter, my 13-year-old, for the first time. She'd never seen it before. So I waited for the very end when the ghosts come out and melt everybody's face. If you haven't seen it yet, that happens. It's a 40-year-old movie, though, so you should have already seen it. But I waited just to see the look on her face when the ghosts came out, and her jaw was on the ground. Like, are you kidding me? And she looked at me and caught me looking at her, and I said, hey, hey, you don't touch it. You don't touch it. That's what happens when you touch it, right? Like she was tempted to touch it or something. That's so funny. But basically, what's failing right now is not the intention but the execution. Two rules about the ark. It couldn't be carted. It needed to be carried. They carted it. Now, they probably thought in their head, hey, we'll just get a new cart. We'll make it a special cart. We'll paint it up. We'll clean it up. We'll throw it on the new cart. That's how they carried everything, though. All the cultures of the world carted things from A to B. They didn't carry things because that's not very effective. It's not very efficient. It's harder to do that. So they threw it on a cart. They should have known better. But this was not a normal thing, is it? It's not a basic thing to be moved around like everything else. Second rule is no one can touch it. Only the Levi's can carry it and nobody could touch it. And if you touched it, you died. The big idea here when it comes to the ark is it wasn't to be treated familiarly. It wasn't to be something that was treated as common, as basic. It was very far from being basic and common. And, but for a split second, it looked like it was going to tump over. So Uzzah does what I would have done, what you would have done. He sticks out his hand and then he drops dead right on the spot right? Seems excessive. What do they do? And then we read that David is angry. Why? Well, the Bible tells us why David is angry. It's because the Lord broke out in anger against Uzzah. But who is he angry with? He's not angry with the Lord. We're going to find that out here in a minute. He's not angry with Uzzah. Uzzah did what anyone would do. He's angry with himself. The blood is on his hands. This was David's fault. He didn't read the fine print when it came to the ark. Heck, he didn't even pick up the manual when it came to the ark. He failed to follow God's directives, and he overstepped. He treated God familiarly. He ignored the holiness of God. He just overstepped. We all overstep, don't we? Yeah, we, we could recognize David in this space right here because we also, when it comes to approaching the presence of God, we treat him a little bit more as a little buddy. Then we do unapproachable light. 
We don't treat him as one who is special. We, we treat him as just a, a, a fixture in our life that we just have gotten used to looking at, and it doesn't really hold the import or the value that it once did. And this passage right here, in this moment, confronts how, how we see God. Maybe you're like me. I find myself often, just like David, treating God very basic. It's what happens when our worship is laced with boredom. It's laced with distraction. Our imaginations, our attention span, our fascinations are sprayed in a million different directions. And God just becomes this boring piece of furniture that used to be impressive, but now he's just almost hidden in plain sight in a room full of other furniture pieces. At one time, he was special. At one time, he, he, he dominated the room. And now we just walk by him a million times and almost forget that he's even there. It's almost as if Moses were to uh, approach the burning bush to hear God say, take off your shoes, just to have Moses say, well, I mean, I did the first time, but do we need to keep doing that? Do I need to keep taking my shoes off? Do I need to keep having this moment be weighty? Friends, this is a 21st century passage. When God becomes increasingly, boringly normal, it's because we've neglected his holiness. We've overstepped. We've overstepped. And our familiarity has bred a level of contempt. Now, David loved God here, and yet he still took so much for granted. And I totally understand that because I do the same thing. But maybe you do as well. But a question I have here is, why don't we see God act intensely like this in other moments? when people don't handle his directives perfectly, even in the Bible or even today? How come we don't see more us dropping dead from time to time? The answer is because there's a lot more at stake here than what we gain at first glance. You see, all of the ritual laws handed down were to show humanity that this God, the God of the Jews, is not like other gods. If you don't know that, if you don't know that that's one of the biggest reasons for the ritual laws, all you have left is to read this and start working your way through the Old Testament to say, man, God really just likes rules, apparently. Like rule after rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. It's like, I guess he just likes rules for the sake of rules. And he likes policing them just for the sake of policing them and showing how powerful he is. But gosh, it's kind of boring. And that's how the whole world sees this, by the way. That's how a world far from Christ looks at your Old Testament. They see it just as a God of rules. That's how I used to look at it. Is that what's happening here? No. You see, in all other religions at the time, you were able to approach and touch the gods made of wood, made of stone, made of gold, made of silver, encrusted with jewels. You could come up and polish their little hand. You can say a little prayer. You could take a selfie with them. Heck, you could even help them out and build them a shrine, build them a pyramid, build them a tomb, build them something. Not this God. Not this God. These ritual laws were to distinguish this God as very different from every other pretender in the landscape. So God is reminding everyone in the world in this moment that he does not need our help to steady the load. There's nothing for us to contribute. Uzzah must have just for a moment said, if I don't stabilize this load, God's going to hit the ground. God's going to drop on the ground. I have to help out. I have to help out. i got to pitch in. But God is not waiting for you or me to pitch in and steady the load because he's not like other gods. Not at all. You see, familiarity crept in and there was an overstepping and the world saw it. And I think the same thing happens today. You see, the ark... <clears throat> 
The ark is what some call a concrete gospel presentation to the world. And I agree, it is. It's loaded with anticipations for Christ. It's how God actually comes close to his people. In every other religion, mankind must come close to God. But in Christianity, this God is mindful of man coming close to him. And here we have that in the form of the ark. But consider what's inside the ark. You have the Ten Commandments sitting inside the ark. A list of things of what it would take to please God, to be pleasing to the Lord. And yet, as we read these Ten Commandments, we also see another thing. And it's not just what it takes to be pleasing before the Lord. It's the realization that we're not there. And we can't be there. (coughs) It's more than just informing. It's indicting. We realize we need a replacement. We need a remedy. We need a help. I mean, the law, it shows just how far we are from righteousness. Romans 3, Paul says this. None is righteous. Nope. Not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I mean, just look at the cadence of that passage. None. No, not. No, no. Right? No one. Not even one. I mean, just over and over again, it's it's in your face how desperately far we are from reaching in, opening up the lid, and grabbing those Ten Commandments. They declared to everyone that God requires righteousness and that we are very far from. You see, this ark anticipates Christ. Jesus, who would be God's presence, not appearing for a brief moment in between two golden angels, but appearing in the person of Jesus between a prostitute and a leper. Appearing between a king and a commoner. That he would appear and dwell among us, not just be carried among us. And he wouldn't come holding the written laws, covered up, but he would fulfill them with his perfect life. That's why the ark is there. Also, I mean, consider the manna inside the ark, which is a symbol of God's grace to sustain his people in the wilderness. And Jesus would be a better manna, a better bread, who would sustain not just our physical hunger, but our spiritual starvation. Jesus, even more than the ark, still reminds the world. If the ark reminded the world that God is different, Christ Jesus shows the whole world that Christianity is not like other things, that our God is not like other gods. He is not common. So for the next three months, (coughs) the ark stayed with Obed-Edom. David saw over time that it just brought blessing to the household, probably wanted it even more at that point. And while this 90 days was going on, he found the owner's manual and started reading it right? And this is interesting. This is what he found in Chronicles. And by the way, while you're turning, you don't have to turn there if you don't, because I'm just going to read it to you, but it'll be in Chronicles 15. If you've ever wondered what the difference is between Chronicles and First and Second Samuel, or maybe Kings, because it, it might read redundantly. You might be like, yo, is this the same stuff I just read? Why, did, why do they have two books saying the same thing? It's not. It's actually more of an optimistic or hopeful rendering of some of the same events. So it's a retelling of the life of David and a retelling of the life of, of Solomon. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's in anticipation for a better king to come. So it's got a lot more hope invested in it. But this is what it says in chapter 15, verses 13 to 15. It says, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Oh, he found the rules. He found them. He probably got to that one line and thought, oh, I knew that. I kind of knew that now that I read it. Now I remember it a little bit. Shouldn't have done that, right? So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to 
bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so God's, God's view, I guess, changed from David's eyes. He saw God differently. Bigger. Changed. And it changed his worship. And we see that in how they mounted a second attempt right here. The worship changes. Because they're carrying it correctly. Did you notice that? that they, they carried it correctly? They're using Levites. They're using the golden pole. And they're stopping every six steps. Did y'all catch that? Stopping every six steps to sacrifice a couple animals. That sounds crazy to me. That sounds like that probably took a long time. Right? And this is what would happen. A priest would walk along, not one of the ones carrying this ark, but one of the other priests, I'm sure there were plenty walking around, would put his hands on the head of the ox or the calf, which would have been the other animal, and there would have been a sort of solidarity between the two. There would be a transfer of guilt from the people, which is the priest represented, to the animal. The animal would be destroyed as a stand-in for the people. So the guilt was transferred, and then the innocence was transferred in the other direction. This is what we see, right? Of course, this is again a picture of the gospel, where Christ is our perfect sacrifice, our blameless and spotless lamb, who had solidarity with his people, and our guilt was transferred to him, and his righteousness and innocence was transferred to us. He was destroyed, and we benefit. That's what we're seeing right here. That's why the sacrificial system's even in your Bible. That's why it's there. It's not there just to be weird. It's there to point to Christ. So David is now worshiping in obedience, approaching God according to his character and his joy, and he's being humble. But this is what it would have looked like from the outside looking in. Another nation would have seen this, and they would have thought, yo, that is wildly inefficient. You guys would just be better if you threw it up on a cart and carried that thing. Why are you guys carrying it on your shoulders? That's going to take forever. Somebody might have explained to them, anyone that would have had a problem, you know, we tried that, and then the thing got a little tumpy, and so a guy died. Listen, this is the way we're supposed to do it. Well, what you needed was another strap, right? If you're a guy, by the way, have you ever been to Lowe's or Home Depot and thrown stuff in the back of the truck to have somebody come along and say, you need another strap for that, right? That's how it would have, that's, that would have been the vibe going on from all the other nations. Just put it back on the cart. You just need another strap, right? I always tell those guys, no, it's good. I don't need another strap. It's fine. There's enough straps as it is, but I'm telling you, all the way home, I'm like, I probably should have put another strap on there. It's trapped in my head. It would have looked expensive of time, expensive of goods from any other perspective. But then again, this is what makes worship valuable. This is what makes worship beautiful, the fact that it's expensive, the fact that it costs time, the fact that it slows us down. Pragmatics, that's not what we're looking for when it comes to a moment of worship. John 12, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Boy, the guys that saw this, they hated it. They were thinking, you didn't have like a knockoff perfume? You had to pour all of it out? They were probably spinning through the same things we would have spun through. There had to have been a more efficient way to do this, a cheaper way to do this, a faster way to do this. Let's speed it up. But that's not what's happening here. Friends, you cannot see God as big and beautiful and worship small. You can't. You can't. 
See, when God reformats our view of him, it will change how we worship. And then, and this is our third point, and then worship will change us. It changes us. The second moving project became a pretty massive worship-filled moment in the day. David was enthusiastically dancing. You don't get the feeling that David is checking a box here, right? And why does this matter, by the way? I mean, especially with dancing, because dancing is just not a big deal today. Some of you are dancing with, like, no joy in your life at all, and you're going to put it on TikTok, and you're not even that good, right? I mean, everyone's dancing. Everyone's recording it. There's a billion different shows on dancing and watching people dance. It's not that big of a deal today to dance. So to read this, we're thinking, who cares? But kings didn't dance back then. Kings didn't prance around with, a, with the, the, the equivalent of a tank top on. They didn't do that. Why? Because they had to be feared. They had to be revered and respected at all times. They had to be threatening and dignified. That's how kings took care of themselves. They didn't do the chicken dance. You know? they, weren't, they weren't making themselves look like a clown in front of everybody. A king was the ultimate object of reference. But David was saying, no, I've got no problem spinning in his orbit because God, he is the ultimate object of reverence. I'm just in his story. I'm just in his story. But Michael, his wife, didn't approve of David's behavior, so she regarded kingship probably a little bit more like her father did. Saul had a view of how kings should operate, and Saul's view of a king would never be one that would dance. I'm sure Michael kind of came up in that same thing. And we kind of know that this is what's going on because he refers to her as you daughter of Saul, right? That's a dig, by the way. He threw a little bit of a shot there. You daughter of Saul. Man, that's like you saying, that's like, okay, that's like you getting in an argument with your wife and you going, you have to wait for a pause and you go, you know what? You're acting like your mom right now, right? Hey, little experiment. Let's all this week, fellas, let's find a moment that's just not working out really well. Wait until you got her attention and go, you know what you look like right now? Your mom, right? Let's see how that goes. We'll all come back and report next week, okay? Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. Because Michael despised her husband for the thing that makes him great. It's his humility that makes him beautiful as a leader. And she despises him for it. And then the Bible says that she becomes barren. Hey, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? Again, the margin of error, right? Does that seem fair? I mean, how many of us have had a crossword with our spouse, thrown a verbal jab? That just, this just seems like that's what's going on right now. There's two theories on what this barrenness is, by the way. All right, I'll give you both. You could distinguish which one you like the best because the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of clarity here. One theory is that God pulled away from her. The second one is that David pulled away from her. Okay? I'm a little bit of a bigger fan of number two. I suspect that it was David pulling away from her, not the Lord. He had other wives. You could kind of start to sense that his affections for her is drying up a little bit. I mean, he's being harsh right now. Proverbs 15 says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? Could David have done better here? Yeah, he could have. David could have done better here. Listen, you could be correct and still harsh. The content of what David said, the content of his response was upright. His temperament is not. I want you to remember this gal before we throw way too much shade on her. She saved his life not too many chapters ago. Turning on her own dad. She loved him. David is unfeeling here. He's right, and he's harsh at the same time. Why is he doing this? Because he's human. 
when we started this whole series, I told you he was complicated. I told you he's a poet and a murderer at the same time, right? He, he dances before the Lord and he commits adultery. <laughs> he, he, is, he is simple and he is too complicated all at the same time. It's, he's inconsistent. It's why we like him so much. But that's ancillary. That's adjacent to this passage. The main, the main question, really the main statement, is that people think that complete obedience to the Lord will make them less happy. People think that complete obedience, complete worship to the Lord is going to just make them un- It couldn't be further from the truth. But that is what we think. We think in our minds, golly, you mean to tell me, I, I, guess, what, I guess if I'm just going to be totally obedient, I'm just going to have to write checks to, to missionaries all day long. I guess I'll be broke. I guess I won't have any money because I'll just be giving it all away all the time. I guess I'll have no free time left because I'll always be at a soup kitchen. I guess that's what it means. If I'm going to live this obedient life before the Lord, that doesn't sound like much fun, right? That's what we think. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The opposite is true. David is happy to become even more undignified because of his worship from a place of humble obedience. He is happy right here. Happy. And this worship changed him. It reshaped him from a place of anger and confusion to a place of joy. Altered the very way he felt. This is where it confronts me. This is where it confronts me. Maybe it confronts you. Where are you in the danger of overstepping? Treating God commonly. He used to be an impressive piece of furniture in your life, and now he's invisible. You walk by him every day. He's not the king of glory. He's your little buddy. He's an accessory you carry around, a sticker on your car. He's a tattoo that you got when you were in a serious, you know, devoted moment in your life, I guess. And now it just blends in with everything else. Is that taking place in your life? I mean, have we forgotten that he is not common? That's where this passage leaves me. And then, and then just with the bone-rattling question of how much will worshiping him and who he really is change me? Will it make me bored? Will it make me bored if I really sell out? If, if, if whatever dancing is to me in the moment, whether it's my soul dancing or my feet dancing, will I, will I really be happy? Or will I be in some shape of unhappiness because I'm giving up so much of this world? That's where it's placing us right now. And I think as we worship today, and Charlie said it well, we worship through cutting the word open. We worship by letting it interpret our hearts. We worship by reading passages out loud and letting it confront and, and, and deal with us. We worship through singing. We worship through giving. You worship when you encourage your friends at lunch today. A million different ways we worship, right? And listen, I know not everybody in here loves Jesus. <clears throat> I sat in way a lot of church services and did not love Jesus. But let me just challenge maybe the view, if that's you or you're watching online, challenge the view you have that he's just a God of rules. Just a, a God of rules. The, the, the question just is, do I have more moments where I behave than moments that I misbehave? And maybe the math works out for me in the end. And by the way, that's not even Christianity. Islam does that, but not Christianity. The real question is not how many rules can I follow. The real question is who is Christ to me? Who is Jesus to me? What has he done for me? How will that change my worship? 
And how will that worship change me?